I had a hobby too. Mine happened to be guns and ballistics. I studied guns and ballistics as much as I could, and I wrote an article about high velocity. So out of all my years working at Weatherby, the last five have been some of the most exciting. Working with Adam, with him running the company. And to think that I get the opportunity of carrying on my grandfather's legacy 75 years later here in Sheridan, Wyoming, I mean, it really is a dream come true. On our mark, the Weatherby Podcast. Welcome back to the Weatherby Podcast. On our mark, the Weatherby Podcast. We've got two guests, one super special guest today, Tyler Greffin. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that's how you say my last name. It's not. It's great, it's... Him. and I know that, but I, I messed it up the first time on accident. Now I do it on purpose every time. That's wrong. Every see, but it's going to make people remember that it's not Grethen, even now, though I, now, I even tell people that it's Grethen. If they're if they're trying to spell yeah. it, I have to say it's Grethen because it's like you're not going to get it right. Random so. people are going to be like, "Hey, Tyler Grethen, <laughs> great hen." It's going to be good. Yeah. So. And our super special guest is Brian, who is a weed scientist for the University of Wyoming. That's right. And it's exactly what you think it is. It's not what you think it is. <laughs> it is not. Uh, Brian, because you do a lot, and I'll butcher if I try to say exactly what you do, give us your uh, – who is Brian Mueller? Okay, sure. So um, I'm faculty at, in the Department of Plant Sciences at University of Wyoming, uh, mostly – the work that I do focuses on restoring rangeland habitats that have been impacted by a number of different things, but largely by invasive plant species. And when I say rangeland habitats, thinking primarily Western U.S., not defined by land use, so not defined by the fact that there's livestock grazing on there, but lands that are dominated by grasses, forbs, shrubs, like sagebrush habitats, grasslands, and things right on. like that. And you guys work on both private and public land stuff. There's not like a designation there. Yeah, we work across the board. So primarily our focus is research and education, but we do a lot of partnership work too. And the issues that we work on are not sort of delineated by land ownership. Gotcha. Yeah. So we've got a mutual friend and uh, employee here at Weatherby that kind of introduced us. We already knew each other. I don't think we really knew what the other one mm. of us did, which is funny. Right. Our kids are friends. Our wives are friends. And then yeah. I, I'm guilty often in, in our little community here in Sheridan of like, I don't often like to talk about what I do because I'll, I'll like, I'll just, it's more for my wife because then people will just, the conversation's like, oh man, let's talk about why the 257 <laughs> right. Weatherby is the best cartridge right. in the history of the world. Right. And then she's gone. I see her eyes roll back and I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> so yeah. I probably, I, I also don't ask people what they do for a living anymore. Cause yeah. I, I just like, I want to know about you as a person <laughs> and That's you know, noble. You, you do some work, but you know, anyway, I just thought that yeah. was funny. So yeah. JD makes this connection and you guys came in with a little bit of a task force that you had put together a few weeks ago. We yep. started talking about some things that you guys are working on. I'm on the board of directors for Mule Deer Foundation. What you guys are doing directly affects mule deer habitat and mule deer herds. And I'm ashamed to say that like I was familiar with the words you were saying, but I often <laughs> also didn't know exactly what you were talking about because I'm a I'm an avid hunter. I've been a lifelong outdoor person, but like 
I know what Bermuda and Fescue and St. Augustine and Rye yeah. are, but I don't know all these native grasses and what's native, what's a, a invasive annual grass and what that really means negatively okay. to what our deer herds and antelope herds are doing. So you guys were working on that and I'm like, oh my gosh, we got to tell the story a little more. So tell the story, Brian. Yeah. So um, <laughs> if you, if you look there, there's kind of a group of, of in, invasive annual grasses. We'll yep. break that down in annual basically means they live for one growing season. They produce seed and that individual plant dies versus a perennial. Right. Exactly. I know that. Right. Much. So they're, you know, they're completely dependent on seed production. Invasive, Usually means that they came from somewhere else, usually a different continent in this case, mm-hmm. and that they can move unaided into natural ecosystems. Right? Yeah. So you don't have to till up the soil or something to make it susceptible to their invasion. So the kind of the big three, cheatgrass, medusa head, and ventanata are the ones that we largely talk about. Um, different histories, different invasion sort of patterns, but the the realized impacts are, are big and growing from these species in the Western U.S. Um, what those impacts look like are direct sort of impacts to forage production and quality, which is livestock, wildlife, and everything. Um, there's actually really strong documentation that they reduce the diversity of species on sites when they, when they become abundant. We can talk about why that matters. It sounds like a really sort of nerdy detail. Uh, no, but, we're here to get nerdy. Um, I mean, why it matters. So if you think about the ability of a plant community to respond to stressors, drought, uh, prolonged winters, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever we want to talk about, having diversity there gives some raw material for that plant community to kind of change and respond. And so if we if we reduce the diversity on those sites, which is what annual grasses often do, then the ability to respond to stressors in the future also diminishes. So what, like, uh, boiling it down, like, what are they doing? Is it just taking up the soil space or the surface space of another better plant? What Partly. Is it's, it's not a good food source for animals? Or what? what's, like, yep. why is it a problem? So... Partly, I get it's, it's taken up yeah, the partly, diversity. But. Partly, it's resource competition. So, okay. and largely in the Western U.S., it it drives. It's driven by moisture patterns. Okay. So, um, those three that I mentioned germinate in the fall. So we get a little bit of moisture. Typically, well, in most of the Western U.S., they'll germinate in the fall. So we get some fall moisture. September, they all germinate and get started. And then and they if, get covered in snow. And they get covered in snow. <laughs> and if our snow ever melts in Sheridan oh, this spring, <laughs> they will be the first thing to start growing really actively. And they'll use up that shallow soil moisture that are and they, they basically take it from our desirable perennial grasses. So they kind of induce a drought situation all the time when they're there, whether it's a drought year. Okay. Okay. And, it, and those taking all those resources are literally killing the native grass then or like making it recede or it's just like chipping away little by little or how does it actually take away that? So it, I'd say it, su- it suppresses, suppresses the growth. Okay. okay. So usually you'd have, you know, you'd have all this great productive grasslands. And then when you have a whole bunch of cheatgrass there, you get something that it lives fast and dies. Right? Well, so, we've got a pretty yeah. short growing season here. We do, absolutely. And so any bit of moisture that you have, and you start moving over into Nevada and parts of Utah, and it's even shorter. Right. And so 
we have drought anyway, and these exacerbate the drought. Gotcha. And the other really sort of odd thing that they do is as they increase in abundance and they do this, they sort of change the way that that entire ecosystem works. So things like nitrogen balance in the soil shifts to favor the invasive annual grasses. Um, in extreme cases, because they dry out so early in the year, they alter the wildfire frequency. So you get like along the Snake River Plain in southern Idaho in places where kind of all you see is cheatgrass. It used to be great sagebrush grasslands back in the day. But what has happened is because it, it creates a bunch of fine fuels. Right. And then we get one lightning strike or a tourist pulls off and it starts a fire. And then some of those places used to only burn like every 100 years, and now they burn every three to five years just because of these annual grasses. And I'm sure there's soil erosion too because with those faster growing, the root base isn't yep. there. So then like you don't – then the soil doesn't have structure to hold on to the root bases and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. You got just little wimpy, shallow roots. Mm-hmm. And so it can literally change the entire system. The, the big issue, especially if you're thinking about mule deer um, behind us, is – is the sagebrush sort of impacts. So sagebrush grasslands in the western U.S. are really important for for a lot of reasons. Our big sagebrush subspecies do not do well with fire. So the annual grasses can just recover every year because they set their seeds and it burns and it comes back. But big sagebrush sucks as a competitor and it doesn't re-sprout after fire. And so you get this puny little seedling that gets started and the fire comes back and it kills it again. Mm. So it changes it from a sagebrush grassland ecosystem basically to an annual grass ecosystem. So you lost all of those, that winter browse, you lost all of those things that you would, that you would have had historically just because this silly little plant has come in and taken over. Oh, that's wild. Hmm. Yeah. And, and the sage, uh, like a sage, like that life cycle is like longer to develop too, right? For it to become maturity all that stuff as well, right? Is that Absolutely. What yeah, they're okay. really slow growing too. Um, and and so not only does, you know, it just takes longer for them to get bigger, but they don't yeah. withstand that. So like, yeah, when you see a giant sagebrush plant like that, took I mean, a long time for, for long it to time. be like come maturity and have that much yield, I guess, yeah. for browse in the winter. Yeah, it might only be up to your knee, but it might be 50 years old. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of wild to think And about. it just can't. When you get that kind of frequent fire cycle, it just can't keep up. Sure. Mm. Yeah. So, so what do you do about it? So, I mean, the crazy thing is this has been a recognized issue since like the 40s, believe it or not. Oh, so it's super fresh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it was Aldo Leopold in one of his books said, basically said that in parts of the southwestern U.S., he he sort of tried to find an attitude of somebody that, what can we do about this and make a difference instead of just accepting the fact. Right. And it was already hopeless then. Like people were throwing their hands up in the air. Um, I would say in the past 10 to 15 years, we have had advances in, in tools and technology. And I think our knowledge of natural systems to where I'm – I'm not going to sit here and say we know how to fix the problem, mm-hmm. but I think we're way closer now than we were before. Okay. I think we also understand the scope of the problem. That's my next question. Way, what what way happens more if we, we do don't before. fix yeah. the problem? So, 
So the group that we were with that we brought in a couple weeks ago now, mm-hmm. um, we we are building on some recent research that kind of capitalizes on new advance new advancements in um, satellite imagery, remote sensing stuff, and over a, a twenty year period, uh, the the sort of take home message at looking at sagebrush habitats in the West is that we have been losing roughly 1.3 million acres of high quality sagebrush habitat every year. And 75 1.3 million a year? Yeah, 1.3 million acres per year and 75% of that loss is directly attributed to impacts from invasive annual grasses. Right? The other the other major components are Think that we're calling it human modification, which is like you're building a house, sure, or sure, or roads. industrial development, yeah, yeah, um, and then and conifer encroachment, which is kind of a weird, hmm. which is a weird thing, but like eastern red cedar, juniper expansion, and things like that. Yeah, but, cedars are pretty prolific, right? Yeah, yeah, especially when you get over into the Great Plains. I mean, they're really expanding pretty rapidly. So there's, I mean, if you just wrap your mind around. St- Stopping the bleeding on 1.3 million acres of loss every year—it's pretty—it's a pretty big deal. I mean, one of the reasons why I think we're as involved in Wyoming as we are, and not to be like a homer for Wyoming, but the bulk of the highest quality intact sagebrush grasslands in the in the West are are in Wyoming. Like 40 percent of what's That's left. That's why we is have great here. antelope herds. That's why we have <laughs> yeah. so many <clears throat> things. Right. Right. We've got most of the sage grouse that still persist in the country, are in the state of Wyoming too, and so the the scale, and and the urgency, I think are growing, and a lot of attention at the national level around this issue, is really starting to kind of bubble up to the forefront too. So with kind of the organizations you guys are involved with. Is it more of like stopping and preserving what we have now? Or what is like the steps, I guess? And I don't want to, maybe I'm getting ahead Man, of no, myself that's a here, great question. Were you at our meeting two weeks I, ago? I was not, <laughs> I was, I was not there actually. So, so. And that's, I think that's part of this, this uh, sea change that's been happening in the last few years. I mean, we're problem solvers by nature. And so if we're, you know, you ask, what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think our, our tendency is let's go find the worst place we can find and fix it and make it better because it's so messed up. Sure. Right. But, mm-hmm. but our, our new sort of spatial game plan and, and we're now applying this at a broader scale. This, the concept is not new. Um, it's, we think about it in terms of, we say like defend the core and grow the core. Okay. So find yeah. the really good places that are still left and, and that are, are susceptible to being degraded and work out from there. So, like, don't go to the worst place, but go and, and protect and expand and work your way back. It's like a wildfire model. Like, have you ever, fought, you ever been involved with firefighting? I have not, but I can, I'm can i picturing, like, a map of, like, where there is the quality and, like, you don't want that right. to continue to shrink. So instead of putting resources in all this, you know, spot where, not that there's not hope there, but, like, making sure that, like, hey, let's really put all the re- that same amount of resources into yep. protecting what we have Instead of, you know, kind of fixing what's already broke. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And while you're over here trying to fix what's already broke, the good stuff behind you that you're not paying attention to is is breaking. Yeah. Right. And so just I want to clarify, you said the word protect. I might have said the word protect. We're not talking about like put a fence around it and don't do anything. It's 
in some of our discussions, some of the, the reasons that it probably is still good habitat is because of the way it's been managed hmm. for all this time. I mean, the ranchers are doing something right. The agency people are doing something right. And so it's not this, uh, this protectionist approach. It's what are we doing right and how can we do that elsewhere? And how can we just shift the focus of where we're doing our efforts to not lose the stuff that's still really good? So yeah. that's one of the yeah. big changes. Spatial game plan at scale facilitated by satellite imagery. And then we start drilling down to figure out what are we actually going to do on the landscape. Gotcha. Yeah. What what can average Joe Hunter do? Like, let's just say we got a guy coming out here from Alabama. I just picked the random state. Got a guy coming up here in Alabama, his first time here hunting antelope. What should he pay attention to? What should he do? Does he need to carry a little bottle of Roundup and, like, you know, spray back oh, grass? Man, dude, that's a great idea. <laughs> um, um, before before oh, you yeah. answer that, oh, yeah. though, maybe also paint the landscape for Joe Hunter. If he doesn't do something, what can they expect? And then, like, this is why oh, it's important yeah, to do yeah. it. So, like, like, if, like, if we did nothing and If just we keep losing 1.3 million acres a year. What does that look like for hunting? So then, then you can tell what Joe Hunter can do because – if he doesn't understand the, like, how is this going to affect me? Not a lot of people buy in. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of human nature in a sense. But maybe maybe give a brief of, like, what if we don't do anything could happen? And then maybe then we can step into, like, things that, you know, Joe Hunter could do. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, and I, th- I think Mule Deer Foundation has been involved in some, some of these efforts that I'm thinking about right now, the the place that comes to mind immediately that would directly sort of illustrate that for somebody who wants to come west and hunt is some of the country in Nevada that has been severely impacted by these grasses. Um, I think in some of those locations, their mule deer numbers have dropped by like half. Mm. Yeah, that's painful. That's bad. Mm-hmm. And so, which means less tags, which, which means, means less, less opportunity. Less opportunity. Mm-hmm. It means all those things that that we care about, um, yeah. and it also means, I mean, just the fact that it means less deer. And so, if that yeah. trend continues, there are other stressors that could impact yeah. those deer herds, and it's just it starts to pile on, and so you end up with this. I'm not going to say a collapse, but a pretty darn downward spiral. Right. Which is why uh, Weatherby is interested in this because. Uh, if you just keep going down that downward spiral, you got less deer, less tags, less opportunity, more competition for limited opportunity, and yep. then you get people frustrated, and then you get people that start to drop out of hunting, right? Which we do not want to have happen. No. Yeah. So, so Tyler, if you think, I mean, beyond that, beyond the deer numbers and the effect on that, um, I mean, what? I, I don't maybe you don't notice like I'm I am you're probably I'm, acutely I'm, aware I'm tainted for for life right <laughs> like I drive through places and uh and just am, I just get sick sometimes but you know, well that's what that's what I'm, I'm hopeful that there's an outcome of of this podcast is that if if, if a, a handful of people start to realize oh that's that stuff Brian was talking about right yeah because once you see something you can't or or you know something you can't unknow it you can't you know? I know. It, it's like uh you drive past something and a certain thing happened there. And every time you drive past that spot, you're like, I remember that there's a, you know, good memory, yeah. bad memory, whatever it is. But yeah, um, it, the knowledge has to be there. It does. Right. So, I mean, getting some general awareness is part of it, but 
I guess to, to finish up your question is, I mean, I, I like driving through a country that's got different vegetation to look at. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about it, it dictates where you go if you're planning to hunt too. In some For sure. Case. I mean, yeah. probably not as much as like where you draw a tag. But once you draw the tag. Where you apply for a tag. Yeah. Yeah, true, <laughs> true. Um, you know, if, if you get to the point, like I can think of places where I can drive in the western U.S. for multiple hours. And it all, this is not an attack on like cornfield country. but So you sure you can drive through parts of the Midwest for hours and all you see is corn. It's feeding the for country. Sure. It's feeding the country. Yeah. It's doing great Iowa. things. <laughs> but I can I can drive through other parts of the country for hours, and all I see is cheatgrass. Mm, yeah, yeah. That balance is way different, right? It's a sure potentially a boring drive either way. <laughs> but the impacts of one is way way worse than it is elsewhere. And so, um, having that that sort of diversity of habitat types instead of converting it all to one thing. That's the that you said paint the picture. That's part of the picture. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm. Right. Mm. Yeah. It's. I mean, it sounds really like doom and gloom and sensational and bad, but I could take you there right now. But like, so and, and spe- species like mule deer, and I'm sure some of our upland species are probably more affected by this. So you'll see those particular species start to dwindle. Absolutely. Even more. But so we're talking yeah. mule deer here, but it's also mule deer. It's other upland birds. It's sage grouse. Sage grouse. Hugely yeah. affected by this. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, think about it. if you depend on plants for your groceries and your groceries are only edible for about two and a half weeks out of the year. Yeah. So it's not that the, the wildlife don't eat the cheat grass. It's yeah. that it just doesn't, it's taken up a spot in the ground and then it's, it's, it's unedible. 98% of the time. Or or if they eat it, it really doesn't give them any nutrition. Gotcha. And so, and then you take the other two, Ventanata and Medusa head, and they are almost completely impalatable any time of the year. They won't even touch it. Yeah. So like okay. a peri- like our good perennial, I mean, okay. for, for, an ex- for a comparison, like our good perennial grasses, they might be green and nutritious, I mean, for months. Right, you know, starting we get, hopefully any day now. Oh, any day now. Hopefully <laughs> they'll start to green up. And and here here in this corner of the state, you know, we might still have green, highly nutritious forage in our native ecosystems yeah. until August. Yep. Until it starts to decline. Yep. Our annual grasses are going to start to taper off in quality on any given year by the end of May. Hmm. And so if that's all wow. you have, I mean, you're, it would basically be like eating the cardboard on the outside of the cereal box for the rest of the summer, if that's all you had. So then you start that's getting those yeah. th- those effects on on body quality condition and all those other things that then carry over into reproduction too. And then it's then it's into the winter. Like when people say right. winter kill, it's not necessarily the snow or the cold that's killing them. It's that they now don't have enough food too, right? Like they're not so a lot of winter kill isn't just purely it's cold or we got a lot of snow. The a lot of snow impacts that not having all of that good quality like sage that they're not now able to browse on. There's not as much of it. Right. So it all ties together. Yeah, yeah. it does. Um, I don't, this may not be a thing, but I remember the year that we moved to Wyoming, 2018. Uh, we, we were driving from Arkansas in May and we had been here in April. There was snow on the ground and we were just, you know, 
full of optimism, move <laughs> in here. And uh, we go through northern Colorado. Everything's brown. It's, it's May, like literally late May. Um, and actually, second time we came up, like the final move was the beginning of July, end of June. And we crossed the Colorado border into Wyoming. And everything was instantly substantially greener, like to the point where, like, kids are saying, "Wow, it's so green here!" Because we just drove up from the western Texas. Basically, we stopped at my wife's wow. brother's house, and it was just brown from uh, basically like Tucumcari, New Mexico, all the way to Cheyenne. And then when you hit Cheyenne, all of a sudden it was like green, solid here to Sheridan on twenty-five. Does that have anything to do with this, or is that just different ecosystems? Or I, I could, don't know if that's yeah, I'm, not, it, but. I'm I'm trying to think. So 18, we had a really good moisture year. Yeah, we did. That could have been part of it. Yeah. I think they were in a drought down in the southwest a little okay. bit farther, so it could have been related to that. But I mean, but it since all, it's been like uh, there's a palpable difference when you cross kind of the state line. It feels more green here later. Yeah, but we're. We're further north, and we're sometimes drier. I don't know. I don't know. It may have we nothing are. to do with. It. So I, I can. I don't. I don't think. I, I don't think this violates any. This is a kind of a similar thing to illustrate your point. I don't think this violates anything. If it does, maybe we can cut it out. Yeah, we'll find um, out. So, uh, and I won't. I won't. I will not name the names the of the states places. of okay. the states to illustrate yeah. this. But uh, we were doing some helicopter surveys of where we've been doing. A lot of work to control annual yep. grasses. So herbicide applications. Okay. Right? We can people we can talk about that if we need to. Because okay. I know people get uncomfortable sometimes when you talk about herbicides. Yeah. Um, but we had a, a about as high ranking government official as you can get in an individual state. Okay. Okay. Right. <clears throat> and and we we flew to the state line with with a neighboring state where they had not been doing any active mm. management. And it was exactly what you, it was green and, and lush on the Wyoming side. And it was brown and tan on the other non-Wyoming side. It's like five options. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe I don't, ho hopefully we don't get in trouble. Um, but the, the, Allegedly. It, it, just, alle yeah. Yeah. Allegedly. Oh, yeah, my neighbor told me about this story <laughs> happening one time. Um, and just the, the clear sort of visual representation of what you could see. Yeah. And, and he, this person clearly sort of intuited that and, and has sort of moved forward a little bit. Um, yeah. So we like, we, we do crazy things like we'll go out once a month and clip and weigh grass and then run it through nutrient analysis. I mean, that's the weird stuff you do when you're that a That sounds scientist. exhilarating. That's <laughs> lovely. Yeah, we used to get called that. They used to call us the grass watchers in one place that we <laughs> yeah. worked on. But so, I mean, we've got the data to show that when you convert it from annuals to perennials, you have more protein, higher energy, and all that stuff throughout sure. the year, too. Sure, But the green and the, the green and brown comparison, it's just, it's stark. It's you can't stark. not see. I you mean, can't. it's... it's it feels vibrant and alive, yeah. and then yep. you're like, oh, my gosh, it's like a wasteland. Yep. And here, across the West, our cheatgrass gets that really dark purple tinge mm -hmm. right before it turns brown. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of the things people, you know, if you're way back in the backcountry and you just see a patch of something that, that's 
purple in late spring or summer if you're out scouting, it might be worth calling, you know, calling the your game and fish person or local extension office or, I mean, get in touch with, with somebody that you think knows about what's happening. If you're on the BLM, get in touch with the BLM office mm-hmm. and say, I, I think I saw something back in this area that you guys might not be aware of. And, and even if they're wrong, it's way better than just going by something and not reporting it. How's that spread? So, I mean, it, it seeds, but then, like, how's it go further away from that one little spot? Uh, wind a lot of times. We, we don't have any of that here. Yeah, we don't at all, do we? <laughs> I mean, there's a pretty, there's a pretty uh, steady move, especially this grass, Ventanata or North African wiregrass, whatever you want to call it, that's moving east. Sure. Largely driven by wind. Although I will tell you, a lot of the first places we see some of these are on either livestock or game trails. Yeah, sure. They're, I, they're walking through it. It's yep. uh, There's burrs in the seed, and yep. it's just... Sticking in their hair, dropping out. Hmm. Unfortunately, we might spread it sometimes. Yeah. I mean, shoelaces. Shoelaces, ATVs. If you got a bird dog that, you know, gets the same thing, gets them in their fur, and then they can, they can move them other places. When we... When we first started realizing we had Ventanata in northeast Wyoming, the places that we found it most consistently early on was on uh, publicly accessible lands where a lot of hunting traffic occurred. Hmm. I don't know that that was the cause. Right. Right? It was but probably just correlated. It wasn't causation. It's more random movements through that. and Right. Yeah. And people coming from elsewhere that are, mm-hmm. you know, maybe if you just – if you just hunted chuckers in Idaho and you came to Sheridan County, there's a potential that your dog had ventanata seed stuck to its, yeah. you know, its vest. Some of those right. people have vests. I mean, we don't know. I don't think we'll ever know. They they move in a lot of different ways. But I think there are things that we can at least think through and be aware of. Is, I mean, if I'm, if I'm in a place that I know has really big problems with some of these species and I've got I mean, I'm going to try to take the time before I go somewhere else that I know is clean and wash the truck, clean the undercarriage a little bit and stuff. And just stop at the car wash and knock off the worst of the mud. Just little things that we can do to try to prevent moving it into the core, the best of the best areas. And I think, I mean, it's not always the easiest, but just try to keep in mind that we un- unintentionally we may contribute to the problem. Cool. Yeah, let's let's yeah. revisit your scenario yeah, so, of guy coming oh, yeah. from Alabama. Yeah, yeah, let's let's do let's so we paint got, that picture. We got Joe Hunter from Alabama, and right. he doesn't know, or maybe maybe now he does know what this stuff is. But what is what what do you do? You if you see a limited patch of it, maybe you call the local office for that piece of land, or am I, am I carrying like well two ounce bottle of roundup yeah so uh, yeah. that feels like a bad idea it might be a bad idea it might be <laughs> it's some. probably like starting with like prevention like what can he do to his truck to what, what yeah. Is, yeah so that if you know you're going from a like a know, an infested area to a clean area i mean just wash your truck and knock knock the mud and stuff off the bottom or your atv i mean atv atvs yeah man you you get that stuff all up under oh, the yeah. undercarriage and there's mm-hmm. seeds everywhere just be sense. aware of that right that would be part of it there are some neat online apps that you can download on your phone that has pictures of the grasses. And if you've got your GPS on, they're free. You can just say, look, I'm, I found this grass. I'm going to mark a point and upload it. Um, 
one of those that has been used nationwide. Can we kind of say the name? It's not Absolutely. Like, it's not. Yeah. It's a free thing. It's, no, let's it's do called it. um, EDD Maps. EDD. Yeah, it's early detection. I should know. Early detection and something. Maps. Gotcha. And the whole – so it was designed out of the University of Georgia, Chuck Bargeron and his team, um, specifically for Shout this. Out. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Chuck. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> I'm new to the soundboard, so I had to at least get one in. And and so it it was designed specifically to address this issue. We got people all over the place right. that aren't trained botanists or weed scientists, but they care about the places that they're in. And so, you know, once you learn what these species look like, you can drop a point on EdMaps, and then it goes through an entire verification process. Okay. You can take a picture and upload it with it. Doesn't cost anything to do it, and then it comes to somebody like me, and I look at the picture, and I'm like, yeah, that's probably the right thing. Right and on. then we verify it, and then it's all shared as well. So if if you put a point for cheatgrass on EdMaps, then you would be able to see it in the future too. Oh, that's pretty handy. So that's it's a really cool. neat system. Um, and, and some states use it a lot, others don't. But in terms of – so that's one way to report okay. it and let the people know. I think the other thing is, um, I mean, most – I let the, I mean, if you're interacting with game wardens or something, like that, we we don't always hope that happens, I guess. But the, any, the, the, what positive interactions? Yeah, positive. Absolutely. There's some really good, you know, there's some really good interactions. They're going to be aware of this in most cases, sure. right? They're concerned about the habitat as much as anybody else. And then I would, I mean, I would think anybody involved in natural resources, like as a profession, wherever somebody's hunting, if you said there's a big patch of Medusa head over there. Or you know, two draws over, they're going to at least understand the potential impacts of that. So if you're if you're hiking and mm-hmm. you are the you know brushed up on all your stuff, you know what Medusa head looks like. What like you just should you just report it, or it's like, hey man, I should pull this out. I don't know. Like what I, what would you do, what would someone do, or do you just report it? I would say just start with reporting it. Okay, that's what I would say. I yeah. might do something different, but it's like a different <laughs> level for me. Sure. Just because. Sure. Um, so I the, I mean, what you don't want to you want to clip you off little leaves and weigh them. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we we have like pulled and bagged plants to where seeds didn't get produced and things like that too. You don't want it to completely ruin your recreation. <laughs> yeah. Too. Um, I think just reporting and letting somebody know where it is. And understanding that it, it's not just it's not just a weed problem that affects ranchers. It affects all of us that interact in the outdoors in one way or another. Yeah, I'm thinking about it from a you know my personal perspective for for hunting quality, but uh, it could also affect a rancher's pocketbook if if this Absolutely. stuff is only growing for a short period of time, and then. Uh, it's very little nutrition value. Yep. If you're trying to raise cows and put pounds on them, you're going to have to do a lot more supplemental feeding later that's ex- wildly expensive. You are. And there was some data from some ag economists that showed that uh, ranches with a high cheatgrass component have a much higher probability of going out of business than those that don't have one. No kidding. And it, it it's really volatile. So one year you might have you know, 100 pounds of grass for, for, of cheat grass for things to eat. And then the next year you might have 2,000, but you can't, you can't depend on it. 
so sure. undependable. And that applies to anything that uses it too. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, some of our partners in, in, in Northern Nevada, I mean, that's all they have in some cases for parts of the year. And so sure. they've had to figure out ways to manage around it. I feel like I've heard uh, Cal from uh, Meat Eater talk about two on block management stuff because he likes to talk about block management programs a lot. Mm-hmm. That was some of the biggest feedback is like why they wouldn't want to enter block management is because of the weed issue that then ruins their grass. So it was just like prevention on like washing your truck and stuff. That's I've heard that before. Kind yeah. Of thing, so. And I mean, uh, to, to broaden the context too, it's, I mean, I'm talking specifically about one very small subset of these invasive plants. I mean, it's bigger than that. Like you get salt mm-hmm. cedar and Russian olive on riparian areas that completely change the way work they work. And it's a, it's a, it affects all of us, whether we know it or not. Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago about zebra mussels kind of being a, a not analogous to yeah. this problem. Yep. And that's become like, you know, there's some legal ramifications in, in some places if you do not get your vessel checked before launching it in the water, um, getting it inspected, I guess. So I, Hopefully we're not headed there, but maybe we at some point we we might be if this continues to to get worse. But I I like to think about uh, other areas where it's a similar problem. Just like hey, they're they're fighting it a little different way, yeah, because they they have to. Because if you know you get those zebra mussels in a healthy habitat that doesn't have them, they're they take over right real fast, and that's kind of what same thing, right? Same scale, same sort of processes. I think. Um, I'm thinking back, maybe not same scale, especially in the Western U.S., just because our our water ecosystems right. are, are they're, they're restricted, right, compared right. to other things. But the process is the same. Sure. I think one of the key issues with, especially with cheatgrass, it's sort of been pretty well established, is we might be beyond prevention in a lot of places, except mm. for these really clean cores. So... Could you maybe, like, you kind of prefaced it a little bit about, like, some of the solutions. So you were talking about some herbicide stuff. So, like, let's say an area is designated, like, hey, this is really good, but we've now identified this is an at-risk area. What are, like, some, like, preventions or things that you guys are, that that would then happen, like, after that? Yeah, so prevention, one of the the key things that we think about is, uh, there's a pretty robust, at least on federal lands, there's a pretty robust uh, weed-free forage yeah. system. Yeah. So weed-free hay, like mm-hmm. you can't yeah. take certified. It's got to be hay. certified to take it on the forest, right? So yeah. that's entirely in place to stop the introduction of new weed species onto for U.S. Forest Service lands, right? There's programs for like gravel sure. and stuff like that too. Um, as far as prevention works or prevention activities, that might be the best example of something that we think probably works pretty well. Um, in many cases, we're, we, we kind of steal ideas from the medical field as well. And, and like with cancer, you hear about early detection, rapid response. Yeah. So, right. you know, get tested, find stuff yeah. early, and you're more mm-hmm. successful. We apply that at a landscape scale for invasive species. too. So if you can't prevent it, if you can find it when it's a patch as big as this table rather than a patch that's 100 acres, your probability of controlling it and keeping it from spreading is way higher and your costs are way lower 
than if you wait until it's huge. Sure. And it started to do all those things that we talked about earlier to change the way the system works. And so um, in, in many cases, when we're trying to be aggressive and, and reduce the impacts, I mean, we're, we're putting helicopters up in the sky and doing, and doing herbicide applications in a lot of these sort of sure. remote, big, big, remote, big right. areas especially. Yeah. And when I say we, I mean, I've been saying we a lot. This is agencies, landowners, this is across the board, and we've got 30-something different partners in our program. And in, in areas that are, are highly at risk for becoming worse, there's some grant dollars that have been made available to different landowners, so they only incur a part of the cost. Right. And so I, I get it. I feel compelled. You guys can cut this out if you want to. But people get really twitchy when we start talking about herbicides. And if we if we had other options, so we try altering grazing practices. We try, right. you know, changing soil chemistry. We try all these things. Um, we actually did a review of this this. Yeah, I could send it to you if you have trouble going to sleep at night. Um, so we reviewed like 64 years of literature around cheatgrass control. And really the only things that consistently worked short-term and long-term were, were chemical options. Yep. Um, and sometimes chemical options paired with seeding desirable perennials on those sites. We're not, we're yep. not talking about Roundup in most of these cases, um, although we do use it sometimes. But some of the, I would say, more advanced herbicides that we work with for these grasses are really selective. And mm. they, they act on a seed while it's germinating. And when you've got a species that has to establish from seed and it keeps the okay. seed from germinating, yeah. okay. right, it's pretty selective. Right. All the perennial stuff that's already there doesn't even touch it. Yeah, it's like so, birth control. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. So it's, I mean, there, there are, and there, you know, we, we, the big group would not be using them if we felt like the potential negative impacts outweighed the potential benefits of doing those things. Sure. Gotcha. That makes yeah. sense. So, um, and, and we're seeing great results with some of these approaches too. Um, multiple years of control, not necessarily an increase in diversity right away, but no further loss in diversity, way more forage production in sites that were treated, um, we've got a study now here in Northeast Wyoming with a bunch of partners where we've got like 60 something mule deer collared with GPS collars. And we've been tracking them for two years to see if they use those places where we've controlled the annual grasses more than places that still have them. So, I mean, we can talk, we can talk protein in grass all day long, but we have not done that many studies. We like the scientific community to actually document how if animals respond. Yeah, yeah, if they respond and use those areas differently. So um, I'm really excited. When we actually get some results, we'll follow up with you guys and let you know. What I we'll can't find wait out. to I'm to really hear excited about, that. about it. Yeah. yeah. That would be really yeah. interesting. It could be pretty cool. So it sounds like to boil this thing down, uh, step one's awareness. Yep. Both knowing it's understanding it's a problem. And then uh, identification, I guess, would be the second part of being aware, being able to identify these three main offenders. Yep. I want to put a picture at the end of this podcast. Maybe it'll be part of our our title slide, just like 
instead of Brian, you're pretty fast. Oh, yeah, that would be great. We'll just we have, can, like, we got some pictures check for out you. this cheat grass yep. from Brian the Weed Scientist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we can do that. Uh, and then step two is after you're able to identify is do something about it. If you see it, call it in. Yep. Uh, try to make a difference. If, uh, yeah, if you know, if you don't know, let me say that better. If you have friends that you're hunting with and they don't know, tell them about it. Yeah. Tell them, hey, you need to you need to figure this out. This is kind of a big deal. If you want your grandkids to be hunting in the same spot, right. it makes a difference. Yeah, and you know, I didn't I didn't say it as far as who to tell, but you know, a lot of us get the opportunity to hunt private land, mm-hmm. and if the rancher gives you permission to be on their hunting, they probably want to know too. Yeah, you know, let yeah. them know, and then they'll know who to get in touch with too. I mean, sure. Because of those potential impacts that they have, I mean, they might also they might also be like, "Yeah, I know, I'm sick of hearing about that stuff," but you would rather them at least have the opportunity to respond than mm-hmm. to just think everything's great in the back forty and it's not. So, I, I, I hunted mule deer in the sand hills in Nebraska this year. Could you uh, tell the rancher there how to get rid of all the sand burrs, <laughs> please? <laughs> we probably got something. We probably got something oh for you. It was so yeah. bad. <laughs> like you'd kneel down, and all of a sudden your 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 knee is in bad shape. Not good. You just got all the burrs. Not good. And if you're trying to go prone, forget about it. Oh yeah, you just got to toughen up a little bit. Oh man. <laughs> oh, wow. It's That's painful. Painful. Yeah. Brian, thank you for coming. You bet. Sharon, is there anything that we didn't cover that you're like, man, I really wish I'd have gotten a chance to talk about this thing? Um, I mean, if. If you want more information, yeah, how can they find uh, we're we're might we had this really clunky University of Wyoming email address. It was terrible to like I can send you a QR code to that one, I guess, but uh, we're migrating to invasivegrasses.com. Invasivegrasses.com. Yep. Okay. And and there's gonna be identification. Is that live now? Yeah, there's okay. there's information. we got some embedded content on there. It's it's semi-live but the the like the brochures for how to identify these grasses are on there um there's some summaries of some of the things that we've been learning and some of the messaging that we're putting out for the whole sort of western u.s so it'll be a good place to go to get some basic information right on yeah well thank you for coming in sharing with us yeah thanks thanks for all the knowledge we'll make sure we share all of those links in our comments or if you're uh an e-blast participant. We'll have links and we'll have some more information there too so you guys can figure it out. Yeah, thanks for letting me come on. It's fun to talk about this stuff. Yeah, and uh, I was going to say that we, we behind us are these mule deer. If you're if you're just listening and you're not watching on YouTube, but we changed our setup a little bit because we're working on a mule deer tour video and we weren't going to video this originally, but I, I just thought of my mom. I feel like I really I really had to... Really Shout had out. To, have a shout out to my mom in here because she's been watching the podcast and if, if if she couldn't watch them on the youtubes then uh i would have felt bad and she couldn't give us a thumbs up right no, she's gonna <laughs> she's gonna thumb it up i expect an extra thumbs up now mom that's great yeah there i can go. share it i can share it that way too we we can link to it on our website Perfect. as well Perfect. so thanks guys yep thank you